It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. Now that, well, election day is over and there's still counting underway, but again, election day is over, counting still underway. What does this mean from a policy perspective for uh, the Ukraine invasion by Russia? Something that's still on the table, a lot of uh, promises, prognostications, punditry prior to the election where respective members of parties stood, but the Biden administration is in charge of the policy. George Beebe, former uh, CIA analyst, uh, specifically with uh, respect to Russia, joins me now. So, George, good to have you back. Uh, Let's dive right in. I mean, here we are. Uh, How does policy look where it stands now and what does it look like or what does it potentially look like going forward? Well, I think where we stand right now is that we're, we're trying to do two things in Ukraine. One is to prevent the Russians from winning from resubjugating Ukraine, reconquering the country. Uh, And we've largely done that. I think the uh, U.S. military and intelligence assistance to Ukraine has prevented the Russians from getting very far. And right now, I think the Russians are are, uh, grateful uh, for holding on to the territory that they've already won. And they've been slowly losing that over the past several months. So, um, I think mission number one is largely accomplished. Mission number two is to prevent this war from escalating into a direct U.S.-Russian military confrontation. And that one's still a work in progress. And uh, so I think what the Biden administration is thinking about right now is um, how can we uh, advance diplomacy here? so that we uh, preserve Ukraine as a you know, a free and independent state, uh, but don't allow this situation to get out of hand and turn into a U.S.-Russian war. And it's not exactly clear uh, how the Biden administration thinks it's going to pull that latter thing off. But uh, clearly there are some talks underway. CIA Director Bill Burns was in uh, Ankara, Turkey, talking to his Russian counterpart, uh, Jake Sullivan was recently in Kiev talking to the Ukrainians. So there's something in motion, but exactly uh, what is happening is a little bit unclear. Does diplomacy ever stand alone? And the reason I ask that question is the instruments of national power have to be in play or available. When the Biden administration made the big pronouncement about oil payments and the SWIFT banking system, removing Russia from the Swiss banking system, oil payments were still allowed to go through. And diplomacy works more often when there is, if you want to call it the carrot and the stick, or the understanding that other things are on the table. Have they demonstrated that in the Biden White House to Russia? Well, I think you're right. Uh, when you approach things slowly, uh, solely through through talks, you, you tend to fail. You can't go to other countries and say, please, let's have peace. <laughs> um, that tends not to work. You need to bring uh, coercion, military for- force, together with negotiations to bring about success. Now, clearly, the United States has, has emphasized a lot of coercion. You mentioned the uh, the economic sanctions that we put the Russians under, 
uh, the uh, military and intelligence assistance to the Ukrainians. So the Russians are certainly feeling uh, an awful lot of pressure on all of this. Uh, but how much, if is, I may, George, how much was that coercion? Because when oil, again, at a higher price is a more is a bigger benefit to Russia, in part removal from the Swiss banking, SWIFT rather, SWIFT banking system, uh, some sanctions against uh, particular uh, oligarchs and other uh, players in Russia. But the oil payment still went through. So from Putin's perspective, and his government's perspective, well, you slapped me on the wrist, but my other hand is still collecting the cash. Well, yeah, but I think this really is a question of what do you expect those economic sanctions to do? If you expect to strangle the Russian economy into submission so that Putin cries uncle and says, you know, whatever you want is fine, please stop hurting my economy, then I think you're expecting far too much of these sanctions. Um, the Russian economy is is too big, too central to the world economy to do that. Uh, if you really want to cut them off, you're going to be uh, hurting the United States and Europe in the form of much higher inflation, much higher uh, fuel prices, unemployment, etc. Um, and so there are limits to what we can do without it having real blowback there. Um, but if you look at sanctions as a tool that is meant to support diplomacy, to increase the incentives for a deal, then I think, you know, that can work. But you've got to be willing to make the deal. You have to know what you what you envision the endpoint of diplomacy to look like. And, and that's the part that I think has been lacking so far. Well, then let's look at combined policies. To your example, uh, as long as Russia has an effect and energy being uh, energy as a part of as a big part of its economy, obviously, uh, maybe the biggest factor. There are other factors as well. Uh, If you combine policy and this is why I question the Biden administration's uh, policy doctrine, if we were to reopen American energy rather than shut it down then we would have, as it is a global commodity, more energy going out on the world stage. It's a future, therefore that would change the markets. And yes, Russia would still acquire, they would sell to China, Iran, probably to India, Indonesia, and others would still buy it. But we would reduce the the price of oil, therefore reducing the financial gain for them to some degree. And probably to a large degree, not to some degree, to a large degree. So if there's no combined policy or the policies are in contradiction to the stated goals where Biden blames Putin's price hike when that began before Putin invaded Ukraine, but at the same time claims credit for small drops, it just doesn't add up. Well, I think that's right. And and that's largely a question of U.S. domestic politics. But, uh, you know, should the United States be encouraging greater uh, production of oil domestically? My, my answer to that is absolutely yes. So what let, let's go back to the election results and the future of Ukraine aid in, in maybe not. All, yeah, I would say in all its forms, uh, you know, there's the pre-election uh, Kevin McCarthy. We should. I'm going to paraphrase, review the aid and the structures. And that was the political jostling back and forth. Real world, what does this election mean for the future of Ukraine aid? 
Well, I'm not sure it means a whole lot. Um, there was a lot of uh, anticipation that uh, an overwhelming GOP victory would raise real questions about whether uh, uh, Ukraine aid was sustainable uh, in Congress. And I think the answer to that is um, that there's not going to be uh, an awful lot of Republican opposition as a result of these midterms. That said, um, I think there are a few instances where we've got some new uh, members that are going to be more skeptical of uh, unlimited aid to Ukraine that's not tethered to some sort of negotiating process uh, that is in America's interest. I think uh, J.D. Vance new senator from Ohio, is going to be insisting on an approach to U.S. foreign policy that puts America's national interests first, that doesn't believe that uh, America should be going abroad trying to make the world a better place, uh, more uh, transforming of other countries, not engaging in social engineering abroad, for example, and looking more narrowly at what's in our own national interest, looking at foreign policy as first and foremost to make Americans safer, uh, more secure, and more prosperous. So um, I don't think that's going to have an immediate effect on uh, aid to Ukraine. But over time, I think we're going to see that affecting our foreign policy debate here uh, in the United States more significantly. Maybe in the public debate, I agree, J.D. Vance can say everything, and I don't disagree that there needs to be a review and a change in this. But the people in charge of the doctrine, and this comes from the executive on down, the Biden White House, the Department of State, are not likely to change course. They've demonstrated the... Uh, inability to alter course when situations change, even in a short two years. And to the history of Joe Biden, who has been wrong on every foreign policy front since Reagan, since he sat in that room with him and nine other senators pre-Grenada, uh, it, history, his history follows through now. Let's talk about Russia for a moment and their perspective. Within Russia, you're someone who was director of C the CIA's Russian analysis or analysis of Russia. Uh, from the Russian perspective, the people, the opposition, is there... A path, uh, because I believe the roadmap or the off-ramp is gone, but is there some other path in Russia? Some other path than the one Russia's on right now? Yes. Um, which, right now, Russia's on a path toward uh, decline. Uh, the economy is in trouble. Um, they uh, have made themselves, I think, overwhelmingly dependent on China, and the global south, um, that is not going to be a path toward high growth rates inside Russia. Um, we're looking at a world that uh, is increasingly conflictual and divided. Uh, and um, I think we're, we're looking at you know, a long period of uh, very heightened conflict between Russia and the West with the possibility that it could spin into actual U.S.-Russian war. Um, now, is there an off-ramp to that? Uh, 
possibly, but uh, inside Russia, I think the most dominant political faction is their hardline nationalist right. Uh, and they believe that Putin has been too timid in Ukraine, uh, too unwilling to use uh, Russia's full array of military capabilities, too eager for some sort of deal-making with the West. Um, so if, uh, if Putin is replaced, I think you know, it's, it's impossible to know for sure what's going to happen. But if I were to bet, I think the odds are we'd get somebody that is even more nationalistic and harder line than Putin is. So it's, you know, right now, under, with the trends that we're seeing, things don't look very bright there. Let's, uh, and I guess call it the exit question for this. I'm sure you and I will have many more discussions. This is not a short-term issue. Uh, depletion and replenishment, to your point. If Russia begins or continues and expands its use of military equipment, yes, obviously the war fighters, the conscripts, and more, uh, but can Russia replenish fast enough to you to replace what they've depleted or would deplete? Well, it depends on what kind of weapon systems you're talking about. But um, if this war continues to be a war of artillery shells and drones and missiles and, and rockets, um, those are things that the Russians uh, can generate in large quantities. Just to give you a point of comparison, the United States makes maybe 20,000 artillery shells per year for you know, the kinds of things that we're sending to Ukraine for firing in the war. Um, the Russians, on average, have manufactured you know, millions. Um, they have lower technology, less capable weaponry, but they make it uh, in, in much greater quantities. They're simpler in many ways. Um, you know, more expendable. But if, if we're in a war of attrition with the Russians in Ukraine over the long term, the Russians have some advantages in that. Uh, if we're in a war of technology and maneuver and intelligence, uh, we've got enormous advantages there. So it's in the Russians' interest to make this a war of attrition. It'll be, uh, it'll be a long time, I think, before we see uh, a resolution here. Unfortunately, many, many lives, uh, the destruction of a society, uh, and so much more. George Abibi, former director of the CIA's Russia Analysis. Thank you, George. You're welcome. You can join me live on The David Webb Show Monday to Friday, 9 to noon East on Sirius XM Patriot 125.